Welcome to The Derivative by RCM Alternatives, where we dive into what makes alternative investments go, analyze the strategies of unique hedge fund managers, and chat with interesting guests from across the investment world. Hello there. And depending where there is, you might be a little chilly right now here in the middle of winter. So this week we want to take you to the warmth of Miami, where we co-hosted a four-person panel during Hedge Fund Week, talking the good, the bad, and the ugly in commodities. The panel had two newcomers to the show here, Derek Stoke of Equanimity Advisors and Gerardo Terraconi, Terraconi, sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that exactly, of Arion Investment Management, as well as two show veterans, Tim Pickering of Auspice Capital and Brent Belote of Kaler Capital, uh, and was hosted by our friend at Cohen & Co., uh, Camille Clemens, which is, I have to admit, a great podcast name, Camille Clemens. Maybe she's coming after my spot here. Anyway, listen in as the panel dives into commodities as portfolio diversifiers, the impact of ESG, the potential for a commodity supercycle, and educating the next generation of commodity investors. Send it. This episode is brought to you by RCM's Managed Futures Group, who help investors identify, invest, and programs like the pros on the panel here. Head over to rcmalts.com slash podcast to see the write-up on this episode or the RCM YouTube channel for this episode to find the link in the pod's description to see the full performance record of these managers and explore the rest of the RCM database. And now, back to the show. Our agenda, I'm just going to run through really quickly, will be introductions by our esteemed panel, uh, a little bit on um, their experience and where they are in the industry as far as what their um, level of commodity trading is, what they're focusing on. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about the reliability of commodities as a diversifier for a portfolio, um, how the last couple of years this asset class has had some strong returns, so how that's affecting us on a go-forward basis. And then I'd like to also dig into a little bit about the education of the next generation of CTA investor, or commodity investors. Um, we're hoping for a really dynamic dialogue. These guys have a ton of experience, are super interesting, have great backgrounds. And then, um, of course, questions from the audience. So let me just start. Uh, my name is Camille Clemens. I work for Cohen & Company. We are a public accounting firm that's uh, 47 years old. Uh, we do a lot in the alternative space, um, supporting investment strategies throughout structures. Uh, we have a large practice on the registered fund side of things too, so we're definitely seeing an intersection of public versus private um, ways of accessing this investment strategy uh, in the marketplace. So I will pass it off to you. Tiny microphone. It's so weird. Um, my name is Brent I run Kaler Capital. Um, we're a systematic oil CTA, and uh, we've been around for a little over five years now. And uh, pass on to Tim. Tim Pickering, uh, Auspice Capital is a firm I founded uh, 18 years ago. Uh, former head trader for Shell Oil, uh, I guess the title of the commodity side, TD Bank. Uh, so we run commodity tilted CTAs. We were the first CTA to launch a ETF ever. So I really wanted to go hear that panel. Uh, we did that in 2008 with natural gas based out of Canada, Eco Gas, for, for those that know the energy market. Um, we run ETFs in both Canada and the US in our brand and other brands, as well as uh, publicly available CTA strategies on uh, both sides of the border as well. Hi everyone, I'm Gerardo from Iron Investment Management in London. Uh, we are a commodity-focused investment manager. Uh, we run multiple strategies by uh, multiple PMs. Uh, we cover anything from oil products to base metals, precious, uh, grains, and uh, soft commodities. How's it going, everyone? I'm Derek Stroke, one of the uh, founding partners of Equanimity Advisors. Um, we're a CTA CPO. Um, with a hybrid focus in liquidity providing and fundamental trading on the vol surface of specifically natural gas, um, U.S.-based natural gas futures and options, um, heavily focused in the in the vol surface and, and the option space. All right, Brent, we're going to start with you. Um, yeah. I've heard you say on a couple of occasions, uh, if you're not long commodities, you're short them, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about that um, specifically. 
your experience through all facets of oil investing. I know you started your career early on in one area and now you're running your own shop. Where do you see the supply and demand balance over the next year? Um, and I'm also interested if you can kind of weave in your thoughts on EV. Yeah, absolutely. So my background, I completely glossed over it. Uh, I worked at JP Morgan before this for, before I started Kaler Capital for 10 years. Um, in terms of, we'll kind of go backwards, in terms of EV, it's been a very fascinating time for uh, <laughs> it's an honest thing. <laughs> that's always been one of the things that I believe is if you're if you're not long commodities, you're short them because every commodity, especially oil, which is our primary focus, um, flows into every aspect of your life. Whether it's your car, whether it's to heat your house, whether it's the food you eat, um, and you have exposure to it, whether you like it or not. So you're going to lose money if oil goes to two hundred, two hundred fifty dollars. Uh, you're going to end up having a reverberating effect on your life for a, a long, long time, um, which is something I've always believed in. You know, I always like to think that we're in kind of the uh, <coughs> golden triangle of uh, oil trading, where supply is slowly declining. Every government in the world is kind of trying to kill it outside of the Middle East, um, and everyone wants to switch to the green revolution, but demand is still increasing. And there's going to be a point where the supply does not keep up with the growing demand, and we lose about five or six percent of, uh, of oil just from decline rates. And as that kind of goes, if you're not constantly investing in that, demand's going to outpace it. And I think we're kind of hitting the point where everyone's planning that the green revolution is going to switch on like that, and it's going to end up being a situation where the supply-demand balances are going to switch very quickly. And I think everyone's going to be underinvested and underprepared for those four or five-year period where uh, it can't catch up. Um, in terms of EV. Obviously, I'm an oil trader, so I'm biased, but has anyone ever seen the amount of mine that is required in materials that are required to come out of the ground to create an electric vehicle on top of the power grid? Um, probably should have added a power trader for here as well, just for that, but you know, the power grid is not equipped to handle anything that we need to get to a full you know, 100% EV green revolution, and I don't think that over the next 10 years even, I, I just don't see that being a reality, especially when you look at the pockets of where demand is still growing, especially in the EM space. Um, so, I mean, in terms of EVs, um, you know, I'm going to be combustible engine until I die, but uh, I, think, uh, I think I think I also live in zero degree weather, so it, uh, batteries batteries go pretty quickly there. Um, but I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a long time. It's even interesting to see some of the requirements from an infrastructure standpoint when putting in new developments, right? There's just not enough power to draw from. So I think, you know, there will come a time where we're going to have to just admit to ourselves it's not an endless availability at the moment. We do have to spend some time catching up. I mean, you can look at some of the nuances here. So think of the Texas production and think of in Alberta and Canada where I'm from. So you get some of the biggest oil production in the world. and where are the two of the power grids who had the biggest failures in the last few years? Canada, just in the last 60 days here, where I'm from, and in Texas. So if, if we can't solve it in those places, like, just think what that implies. And, and the whole idea of going green, and, and even if you tie in ESG as a, as a concept, it's all a good idea, right? But we're just not prepared for it. We're nowhere even close to being prepared for it. And so even as we coast down that sort of path, what does that imply for us as commodity traders? Volatility, right? As long as we got vol, we can make money in some capacity, and this push towards decarbonization and this green revolution, we're just, we're nowhere near ready for it, and so it's gonna be good for what we do. That's the yeah, I would agree. So it's definitely probably the only demand driver for commodities, you know, for with this energy transition requires a lot, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of metals to be taken out of the ground, and there has been obviously underinvestment in uh, in metals over the last like 10, 15 years. If you want to have you know a new copper mine, it might take you like 15, 20 years from you know discovery to production. Uh, so yeah, I, I think. Um, I think what we're going to see in the next few years, you know, rather than a massive, you know, like commodity super cycle, is going to be a longer cycle. We don't know how long it's going to take uh, for, you know, for, for this energy transition to, to actually to materialize. But one thing that I think we're going to have is certain volatility in, in oil as well as base metals, metals like you know, copper, nickel, aluminium, 
uh, it does not take much for you know for, for certain spreads for certain you know, for, for flat price to uh, you know to spike so I think you know for strategies that are relative value like you know what we do for example with Tarion, I think it's going to be regardless whether we are going to go like fully green in the next 5, 10, 15 years, one thing is going, we're going to have is volatility these locations and this is going to benefit, I guess, all of us. Uh, <clears throat> not to sound repetitive, but you guys hit a lot of great points there about the green revolution and the increased volatility and the trading opportunities that that bring. And as CTAs, we're not just here to be... Uh, it, it, we're talking about a commodity super cycle, but the trade opportunities from a ball perspective, the what's we're in this uh, transitionary period of you said oil, the same thing in natural gas and power prices, and you hit on the ERCOT power prices and what happened. Um, we seen two years ago with this the um, URI in Texas, and we had these large spikes in the, the ERCOT plate fa uh, failure in the grid, and we just saw the past month record low pr uh, weather. Record uh, low weather temperatures in Texas just two weeks ago, which drove up prices to thousand dollars for the weekend, and we saw Henry Hub natural gas prices from a spot perspective trading at ten-year highs. So this brought this really volatile natural gas environment over the last month, um, where we went from two dollars and fifty cents to three dollars fifty cents, back down to two and a quarter. Um, now March is two dollars and seven cents today, which is at a contract low. It's still this transitionary period in this ESG and the trading opportunity that it's bringing for the CTAs and this this increased ball that the last two years for natural gas were the highest ball sustained ball ever. So um, this is all this transitionary period that's going to probably sustain for the next five to ten years before we are ready to move towards more of a renewable standpoint. Um, can, I, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Since I'm familiar with your strategy, like how you know obviously people talk about the end of oil and where it's going to go and what do you do when oil's $14 forever because we have too much of it? And I think Nat Gas is a good kind of, you know, when I started my career, I think Nat Gas was like $14 or $15, and now it's consistently in the twos. Like, how has that evolved for you guys in a, a lower price environment, but still high vol? Yeah, from percentage moves, I mean, even though we're trading at last year, we, we you know, two years ago, we went from $10 to $2, and we sustained this north of 77 ball for, for the average of the year. Last year we were more in a $2.50 range, but we still had these large percentage moves and these vol opportunities. There's these spikes, and as we move towards um, maybe a greener energy, there's going to be these short-term trading environments and these short-term potentials where the green energies go back to Texas, and uh, roughly 30% of their power maybe in the summer now is coming from from wind and a little bit more from solar, so like 40% of the grid, but there's gonna be times where the batteries aren't there yet right now, so it's gonna create these short-term opportunities in, in natural gas, even though if we're sustaining $2.50, it's still a weather-driven product where we're gonna have short-term dis dislocations, as you uh, mentioned before in your, in your products, so um, the, the opportunities are gonna to continue to be there, even though in a, in a lower-price environment. There's always going to be short-term opportunities. Tim, I'm going to come to you uh, for the next kind of portion of this because I think it is a nice transition. You were the head trader for Shell for a bit, and then you started Auspice, and now you trade everything. Yeah. Um, can you talk to me a little bit about why did you go beyond energy, and how does that play into this conversation? Yeah. I mean. That's a good question. So, I mean, I, I was really trained to manage mall. And so ended up focusing, focusing at TD Bank and then to Shell um, on energy because it moves. Right? So if you want to trade ball, energy was the place to be. And I'm a little older than Brent. So, um, you know, at the time, natural gas, um, it really was the Bitcoin. It was this chaotic thing that power market was still developing. Um, so if you really wanted to trade, um, and the big merchant energy shops at the time, whether it's Shell BP, Enron, you know, there's a whole host of them that are now gone, but um, it was a great opportunity. But, but why I bring that up is what we learned and what we honed uh, trading first at TD Bank and then at Shell was how to trade this uh, really chaotic commodity in natural gas. So the way I like to describe it is, 
Natural gas at 30 vol is not the same acid as 120 vol. It's a completely different animal. And I'm a quantitative trader. I understand the fundamentals. I don't act on fundamentals. But we need to come up with a systematic, and in this case, trend-following methodology that made the transition from trading low vol to high vol and kind of going through these regime shifts. Natural gas would be low vol, it would be high vol, it would go back there if you blink. And so what we did was we developed trend-following strategies um, that made that transition. It was really focused on energy markets that did this because in our view that was the need. If you were going to be an effective trend follower, you needed to adapt to the volatility. And that's how we describe it. So why all, all markets? It was an epiphany with myself and my trading partner, Ken Corner. He's the co-founder of Auspice. We've been trading together since 2000, so 23 years. Um, was sort of, why are we just trading energies? If we developed a strategy that adapts to the different volatility, volatility regime, uh, sort of volatility regime shifts, why are we just doing that in energy when other markets do this and we're not a fundamental trader? Um, so, you know, we tried to push that boundary at Shell. It really wasn't the place for it. And we just said, you know, we're going to go off and, and do this on our own. When we left in 2005, left Shell, I left in January of 2005, um, I, I didn't really even know what a CTA was. I mean, I was a quantitative trader, used futures contracts, that's the most cash efficient way to do it. Um, you know, why not trade everything? And in fact, I remember getting ready to launch the first fund and somebody in Chicago, I can't remember FCM or something, asked me, you know, you're going to trade grains. Why, why are you going to trade grains? They, they don't move anymore. Like, why bother? And it's like, we're going to trade everything. And we're completely agnostic in terms of market and, and, and with one tilt, and that is commodity. Um, we run 75% commodity risk. We don't care if it's long or short. We don't care if it's this or that. We do throw in financials from a diversification standpoint. But it truly is because there is more alpha opportunities in commodities. Commodities are the most diverse asset class there are. It's not even a debate. And then you get to the diversification benefits for a portfolio. If I'm targeting an institutional investor, that's truly what they're after is diversification and, and true non-global returns. So to us, it was just a natural thing and then our strategies could make the transition. Our strategies aren't built for energy per se. They're built just for volatility movement. That's a great answer. Long -winded way to answer. I won't start to ask you about uh, your feeling around alpha. <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. Oh, that's for me? No, no, no. I was saying. <laughs> yes. oh, well, I would like to add you know, to what Tim just said. You know, I completely agree. You know, the commodities are the most you know, the diversified asset class. Same thing that we do at Tario. Initially, we started as with a focus on base metals and mainly copper. Uh, specializing in you know, geographical art between copper trading on the Almi versus copper trading on COMEX and then in 2019 we decided to to expand into other um, in, into other products like fuel oil, distillates, gasoline and then a few months ago we decided to expand into other commodities like grains and uh, soft commodities just because if you focus on, if you have, you know, if you hire specialists looking at focusing on one or two commodities, if you if you manage to cover like 15, 20 commodities, there is always something going on in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in one commodity or the other. So you can really, you, know, you can have exposure to, you know, to that diversification that uh, commodities uh, can offer. Um, sort of hit on some of the points here, but the the volatility opportunities and, and why invest in commodities and the, the diversification of a portfolio and um, that there are a lot of alpha driven strategies in the commodity space because we can't rely on the beta of the, the equities world and you have a lot of talented traders that have made their way into commodities where we're able to you know our returns are completely agnostic to the equity world and even to the commodities that we're trading ourselves so we trade natural gas but we don't have any exposure long-term um, or completely uncorrelated to the underlying price of natural gas in our strategy. So it's really diverse, um, or a diverse instrument to really enhance your portfolio from, from that perspective. I mean, I, I, you know, I just second this, you know, Brent came from the oil trading background and 
you know, we started natural gas, we kind of took it all into the ZHL. I mean, the, the things you learn in the energy trading environment, uh, I do I believe it was a gift in my career yeah. in terms of perspective, in terms of managing risk, in terms of uh, you know extracting alpha. If you can do those things in a volatile market like uh, gas or crude and you know, a myriad of other things, um, you know the rest of it. Think volatile times going through COVID or 9/11 or or. Uh, Financial crisis. It's just, it's just, you know, just another volatile period. COVID was nothing any different than any other time period. And when crude went negative, we traded negative before, right? Natural gas, we trade negative as a balancing factor way back in 2000, 2001. So you know, we already knew what to do in that case. Even though it blew up half of all marks across yeah, the street. Yeah, so yeah for sure. But like, I mean, you know, these things happen in energies and, and you're prepared for them. You're mentally prepared for them. Your risk is prepared for them. Uh, Gerardo, let's talk to you, talk a little bit about um, the long-term drivers of commodity prices. I know that you're, you're kind of knee-deep in that across a bunch of different markets. Can you comment on on the longer term view here? Sure. So I think, yeah, the, the title of this, you know, this panel is like commodity super cycle. I was speaking with, you know, with some of you earlier. I don't think it's really, I don't think it's going to be a super cycle. I think it's going to be a long cycle. Commodities are certainly in play. I don't see a, I don't see a big, like big demand coming from you know a country like you know, like China that was you know, like ten years ago. China is obviously still there, less less compared to five six years ago. Uh, demand coming from the energy transition is not something that is going to materialize in the next like twelve months, twenty four months, or so something that might materialize over the next like ten twenty years. Something is going to be more the you know the real the real driver of commodity prices is going to be more supply. Uh, whether you know supply shocks or supply deficit in uh, certain in uh, certain commodities, so I think rather than um, you know, calling it a commodity super cycle, I think we can almost call it, as you know, someone mentioned earlier, a commodity like super squeeze, where prices can prices will uh, will uh, you know, will will be driven by short term squeezes that you can have in one commodity or or, or the other. This will certainly offer opportunities. To, you know, to to have trades, to have is not long only, but trades, other volatility, other buy options, or uh, relative value, relative value strategies. So here's what I'd say: No, um, you're wrong. So <laughs> we may as well have fun. We may as well have some fun. We may as well have some fun. There's two basic ingredients for a commodity super cycle. There's a period of lack of capex or lack of expenditure in commodity supply, right? So we've had capex peaked out about 2012, and it went down for a decade. We've only seen it come back a little bit, and that's pretty much commodity-wide. It's everything from energy to mining to everything. So that's your setup, and in every one of these cycles, that's the setup. There's a lack of capex for an extended period of time. I'm not talking one, three, five years. I'm talking a decade. We saw the same thing in the mid-90s when it was dot-com and everybody forgot about commodities and then came China. That leads to the second part. There's some sort of generational catalyst that occurs to get a commodity super cycle going. And back at the start of my career, it was mid-90s, I got on the desk at TD, you know, focused on commodities. People thought I was throwing away my career. It was dot-com, NASDAQ, the internet. Um, you know, this is old school stuff. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, along came China. This demand factor changed everything. And it really was the, the catalyst at the time. When I think about the catalysts we have in the marketplace right now, it exceeds that China factor in, in multitudes. And it, it's everything from we've got more geopolitical tension right now than any time since World War II. That's one thing. We've got various supply demand issues that keep happening, whether it's, you know, the hoodies or, or in whatever straight or, or, or uh, problems in the Panama Canal due to, to drought. Um, we've got deglobalization, we've got 
decarbonization, you've got demographics. We've got India now as the largest population in the world with the third largest middle class. Remember, commodities go up in price and get inflationary when you've got not only population growth, but you've got affluence, when you've got income. And when China hit about 4,000 GDP per person in 1999 and 2000, that got the party started. India just hit that level. They're already the third largest uh, in the world in terms of middle class. They'll be the largest middle class in three years. So we got a lack of supply already. And what's happening with company, uh, countries like India is they're weaponizing certain commodities. Think in the last year, wheat, rice, sugar, some of those foodstuffs start moving. What do I care? I'm just an agnostic trend follower at the end of the day, and I'm not a fundamental trader. But when I look at those factors that bring in the volatility, because there is that supply and demand in, imbalance, there's already a lack of supply, the, the volatility that follows and the trends that follow out of that, I haven't seen this set up since, you know, since the mid-90s, late 90s. So I think we're in for not only a period of volatility, and then we can get to inflation in a second, please let's get into that, but, but this is a structural shift. This idea that we're going back to 2% inflation, I'm sure somebody's gonna take this bet on me. Um, this idea that we're going back to 2% inflation is laughable. The central banks don't control cost push inflation. That's wages and commodities. They don't have that lever, right? So what's gonna probably happen is we're gonna have a structural shift where the narrative starts to change where the average of 4% inflation that we've seen since 1970 start to gonna be their narrative again because they can't fix that problem. And we're gonna have to accept higher oil prices and natural gas is way down too cheap. <laughs> and all these commodities are gonna to continue to rise because the world ain't getting smaller and the Eastern world wants the same thing we have in the Western world. And all that's gonna mean is we've gotta accept higher prices and more volatility. Um, we are absolutely in for a super cycle but when I say super cycle, I don't mean it's going like this. I mean it's going like this. It's going to be volatile, and for what we do for a living, it's like the most exciting proposition ever. We make our money on war, famine, and strife, and hurricanes, and all this shit. And that's just the way it is. And it's not we never work. root for them, right? Just <laughs> <laughs> know how to capitalize. I kind of do. <laughs> well, Derek, maybe you can it's speak you're Canadian. a little bit to the, the concept of the volatility of natural gas prices and some of the things that you've seen from a development of our ability to, to handle the production and where we put it and how we kind of manage that. I know it's something you focus on, yeah. Yeah, uh, trading volatility and the opportunities that are brought by, whether it be a, a cold snap across January or flash, sort of this shift in the world that we've seen is the U.S. becoming the largest exporter of LNG the past year. Um, and now it's a, a newfound volatility, a, a new risk in the U.S. in the U.S. for natural gas prices are these LNG export facilities that we put in, all basically in the Gulf where there are hurricanes, and we used to have this um, production risk in the Gulf 15 years ago. That's now shifted to um, the LNG export facilities in the Gulf, where we saw Freeport go down two years ago, and we went from $9 gas to $6 gas in one month. Um, eventually we came up and realized roughly a, a hundred vol for that, that time period, but this shifts in everything that's changing in the market, these, these different vol opportunities as we bring in new ESG um, projects, new LNG projects. It's a fundamental shift in the pricing and it's gonna bring vol with it. Um, well, you've even got regulation doing that. You just saw that in America here in the last 96 hours, right? Let's stop LNG exports. I mean, we've had that same problem in Canada for a decade. We were on top of the LNG exports a decade ago and got beat to the punch. And that regulatory aspect is adding more and more volatility in the Western world. If you go to Asia, anywhere, go check it out from a commodity perspective. They don't care. Yeah. Flow the commodity. Well, yeah, the world needs the natural gas anyway, so it's going to come from somewhere. If it doesn't come from the U.S. and we shut it down, somebody's going to supply it because we need power. Um, everybody likes having their lights on at night and heat on during the winter. So um, I was talking to Bobby about this earlier. Who would have thought, like, in the last, you know, in this era of ESG and green, 
one of the fastest growing commo physical commodity firms uh, out there right now is, is focused on coal. That's a little bit of a surprise if you think about it. But those guys are growing fast. Well, we That's just cool. saw New York, uh, the NISO, they, they're walking back some of the transitionary coal periods. They were supposed to decommission two uh, New York City coal power plants, peaker plants. And they had to go back and walk that back and extend it for two more years because there's nothing to make up that power right now. So we've decommissioned all this coal, and this is something that's led to some of the natural gas volatility in uh, Texas and, and, and such recently. We're just not prepared to transition away from these products yet, and that's brought, brought on this, this new level of volatility. So um, makes for a great trade environment, and it's going to last for the next decade to come because it's going to take time. talk about interest rates and inflation and how we think, like wh what are we thinking? Because I feel like if you've been trained to trade volatility, who knows? 60% of the world will be going through some sort of an election this year. How does that come into play? Like, can we talk a little bit about that? I know it's kind of broad, but it's supposed yeah, to be. What, what do you run for a margin to equity? Yeah. <laughs> B? Yeah, 5%. Yeah, so we're 6-6 six, six over 18 so I, years. That's a nice yeah. little tailwind. Yeah, it's good. I, I mean, I think that's actually an interesting thing where we've got a lot more interest because uh, people are looking at what you can get on the risk-free rate uh, versus us. And so rather than have a commingled vehicle where you're paying, you know, the time cost money of 5 6%, you know, we're 5-6% we're total margin to equity. So a lot of people, kind of what we're finding, it's kind of been a tailwind for us on, on the back end with, with where interest rates are, is, is people like us from a perspective of diversification. They like us that we're low cost to get into. Um, we offer daily liquidity for our investors. And um, it's been kind of something that we've seen is people who have had maybe two, 300 million tied up with a commingled vehicle is kind of coming over to more of the SMA space. Um, it's also kind of speaks of the structural changes that we've seen where I don't think there's been a lot of commodity fund launches in the past or in the last like five, six years, if I look historically, just from a standpoint of there's been so much money flow into the multi-strap model that a lot of people who would have gone out on their own and started uh, new funds are now, it's just so easy to go to the millenniums, go to the larger guys and, and have and have a dedicated seat with VAR right on day one as opposed to kind of launching your own. So I think, you know, if you kind of made it through this transition, I think there's not as many of us as there used to be, especially in the oil space, um, that's for sure. I already gave my bit on interest rates <laughs> and inflation, so oh, and I think, to add to that. Yeah, I think inflation's way higher than 4%. I think anyone who goes to fill up their car with gas or goes to the grocery stores doesn't believe anything the Fed is throwing at them, so yeah. I don't see that going back to my point. I mean, look, I mean they've, they've done this many times, and all the central banks, they, they want to push out a narrative, and they don't want panic to ensue, right? Because they never talk about commodities because that does instill panic, and and they don't have that lever. It's as, it's as simple as that. They can't make it go away. Now, theoretically, in the 70s, um, they did because they raised rates for 10 years until it was high teens, and then they you know killed the killed the economy, right? But they're, they're probably not going to do that this time. So they're going to have to get more comfortable at a higher rate, and I think people are slowly going to get used to it because right now it's not at 4% anyway, right? So if it averages out at 4% where it's been since 1970, there's probably a comfort zone in there. And uh, you know, I think we just gotta get used to it. Yeah, and I think we, we kind of got used to it in the last like two, three years. Yeah, I mean, I don't think inflation is gonna come down anytime soon. You know, I'm, I'm probably less I believe less of the all the all the commodity super cycle, but I'm, I'm certainly convinced that the volatility in commodities is uh, is is uh, is here is here to stay, and inflation I don't think is going to come down anytime soon. Yeah, um, I think everybody likes their comfy lives, and the, if you want to get rid of inflation, it's going to take some pain in the markets, and I don't think politically or. Nobody's, nobody's ready to take that pain, so it's going to stay with us. Well, I mean, what's the incentive here, right? So rates go up even to where they are, so it's a, it's a rapid increase. It's not that high on a historical basis, but what's the incentive? You bring up rates. Does that incentivize more short-term commodity supply or incentivize investment in long-term commodity projects? It doesn't. It makes it harder. 
And so all this exacerbates the problem. We're not making the problem easier, we're making the problem harder. Yeah. And, and that's just our reality. Then you get to green, which I love the green side of the equation and, and, and you know who's making a difference and you gotta give Elon Musk some credit if you don't have to like him or not. But who's investing money in the green space? It's the energy companies. Right? We all understand that. It's the Shells and the Chevrons and the BPs that have the engineering know-how and the capital to do it. They're the ones making a difference. And if we screw them, we don't have a way forward, right? And so that's the reality of the world, is, is, is this becomes a, you know, sort of a self-fulfilling cycle. And commodities are gonna be the benefactor. California is a great microcosm of that. If you've been seeing any news about the Chevron facility that they've been threatening to close down, it. California gasoline is super unique. Number one, they're idiots because they created a new gasoline that's way more expensive than normal gasoline, and it's impossible to resupply there. So they either have to import it or they have to lower their standards, and they're not gonna do that. But what do they do? They threaten Chevron with all these refining sanctions and making it more difficult to be a refiner there. What's Chevron gonna do? They're probably just gonna close down their refinery. And uh, they gasoline $10 a gallon in California. And it might, it might mean that everyone in California drives Teslas, but it, uh, you know, it might be a situation where people who are, can't afford a Tesla are the ones who are going to pay for it. So it's interesting to see kind of that microcosm of... Uh, I don't know if you heard that news that Hertz, I rented a Hertz yeah, this year. Hertz, Hertz just announced they're getting rid of a large part of the EV side of their rental fleet. It's too expensive, people crashing too much, and they're blowing it up. It's just, the, the, you know, it's a great idea, but we're not ready. I live, I live in Calgary. It got cold in the last month. I mean, we're just not ready for certain, you know, yeah. certain things. It's also a reason I, California born and raised, and I live in Wyoming. So it's uh, <laughs> everybody's in Wyoming. Well, there's no shortage of new uh, gas stations being built, which is another thing that I find very interesting. It, um, yeah. Um, I have a question since we're talking about the generational event that's going to provide additional. Uh, to be the catalyst, if you will, for the commodity space. Hi, I know that we've got um, everything from SMAs to ETFs represented on this panel from an access perspective. How are we going about educating kind of this new generation of investors to ensure that they understand the, the benefits and how commodities really are a diversifier in a portfolio as opposed to just kind of a, a more retail, if you will, uh, investment? A simple thing to just educate people with quite a blended portfolio into it and, and put in this mix where you're going to have this diversifying factor that's going to blend out your returns over time and it'll, you're taking money away from something that's going to really just look at it as a blended portfolio and what you're long-term risk rewarding is by adding commodities or some sort of SMA that's going to diversify a large portion of your portfolio. I think it's interesting because you don't need to have, you know, I think that's, you know, like, when you think of commodities, we're never going to be the 60% of the, the, the pot. Like, we're just, we just aren't. We're always going to be a, a smaller piece. And so even adding a small chunk of that to it, and that's just kind of something we needed to understand is, you know, it's going to be hard for any of us to be at, you know, the size of a credit fund or a rates fund just from a standpoint of, of flows. But I think even adding a little bit, whether it's five or ten percent, you know, across the diversified, is kind of what we're seeing. And I think that's kind of been the mo. Is you're now seeing a lot more fund of funds and multi strats and different different people get into the space of allocating, you know, for lack of a better word, the little guys in the commodity space. And I think they're getting a lot of alpha out of that. When you take four or five, you know, forty annual vol, twenty annual vol, thirty five annual vol, you put them in a portfolio, and all of a sudden you're like, wow, it's actually seventeen with a two and a half chart. Like that's a pretty good portfolio. Um, so it's fascinating to kind of see like as they piece it together and run the numbers how uncorrelated we are versus everything like you guys are negatively correlated to the Nat gas we're negatively correlated to the price of oil even though that's all we trade and that's all you trade in. and so it's like fascinating to see kind of how everyone's kind of coming around to it time to time. Something you could do with uh, the commodity space and whether it be via SMAs or a Kaler and an equanimity, you could put those two portfolios together and see how that looks in your in your portfolio over time and how that's going to bring down diversifying across the space and um, you're going to have these very good returns with probably pretty low risk if you're diversified across four or five of them that are annualizing 20% with a 
one plus show up or so. It's gonna it's gonna look good in your portfolio, I promise. <laughs> so, so I mean here, here here's a quick way to answer. You know, education is kind of everything in what we do. And it has to be a big focus for our industry. It is a big focus for our industry. And I think it I think it's started to come a long way. I mean all these terms are opaque and weird. You know, CTA, managed futures, we're all scared of commodities, futures, back to futures, you know, it's scary stuff. So it does take a lot of work in terms of the education. Um, and it's not just retail versus institutional. We spend as much time educating our pension clients as we do as our retail ETF clients. And so we cover the whole spectrum at Auspice. And it's, it's really pointing out some simple things, and these guys have already done it. But the one that's kind of struck me lately is if you look back at um, inflation and periods of inflation and the 60-40 portfolio and bonds and equities, you can go back in time. And as soon as you go back to a period pre-2000, it is normal inflation and normal interest rates. I'm not talking 20% of the early 80s, late 70s, just normal inflation. Bonds don't hedge equities. All you have to do is point that out, that we're in a period where bonds don't hedge equities. And so what's happened? You've got to look for something else. Well, let's look at private equity. Yeah, that's not going to solve your problem. And so institutions have started to get this. Retail investors have started to get this. And you only have to look as far as the ETF launches in the retail space that retail investors are looking for and they're craving this diversification too. All you have to do is point out that your biggest investors, your smartest investors in the space, so pick on one like Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. They look at that factor. You can see them bring down their fixed income as soon as inflation starts to come about. Where are they putting it? They've got 10% of the entire portfolio of Ontario Teachers Pension Plan portfolio in direct commodities. 10%. And they're already a diverse investor. So as long as we kind of keep on that narrative, and it's going to take work, you should have a good distributor. You've got a few, you just got to keep working at it. But it's all about the education. I think as soon as institutional capital starts flowing to something again, and it feels like it was right for a while, and then the great global financial crisis happened, and yeah. that was the pocket of liquidity that these investors could draw on, right? Because you, things were tied up in hedge funds, things were tied up in private equity. The public markets were in shambles, and so the place they went, of course, was to yeah. this commodities. But just, but just remember that, like, you know, the institutions, you know, the really smart people, of course, you've got those clients. But, but retail investors can move faster, right? The RIAs can put money to work far faster than the pension who rolls this up through their IC and takes it to the board and everything. Oh, then we're going to invest in commodities again. Oh, I thought we said we were never going to do that. But the RIA can make that response much quicker. If you would have told me as COVID hit, as COVID hit in 2020, our focus at Auspice was entirely institutional, entirely outside of Canada. Um, we raised, and you know, we've multiplied by four or five times our capital, and it's come a lot of it from retail investors who are looking for that just because they can react faster. Institutions are going that way, it just takes a lot longer. But it's the same education, it's the same narrative, and it just takes a, it just, it's a process. It's pointing out the same things. <laughs> I think I'm just going to summarize. I think the summary is you, you've got to wear commodities in the portfolio, especially in the last like, three, four years, commodities are in play. You offer um, clearly a diversification, then how you're going to build your commodity portfolio. Uh, you want to have you know, diversification of style in terms of strategies, you know, discretionary, systematic. You want to have diversification in terms of you know, sub-commodities, whether it's exposure to energy, base metals, grains, soft commodities. and you want to have you know, RV and directionality, but yeah, definitely you want to have commodities now that you know, all is all is back. Any questions <laughs> in our kind of final 12 minutes from the audience? Anything? Yeah. I just have a quick question. Bloomberg read an article not too long ago, which I think was purely fiction, but it blamed CTAs yep. for price volatility <laughs> yeah. and high prices. I think yeah. Brent, you might have even been referenced, but uh, do you think... I think I was the front page of it. <laughs> do you think that that comes from a place of pure ignorance, or is there something more nefarious? Uh, I think pure ignorance out of the writers from Bloomberg, considering okay. the interview I gave for that, um, <laughs> was very pro-CTA and trying to 
to, to kind of teach everyone about how futures and oil space work. Um, I, I do think there is, you know, some nuance about it that, yeah, we, we do look at shorter term signals sometimes and we can be faster movers. But I think calling us the reason behind that, I mean, you could say an ETF liquidation is just as, just as uh, you know, just as volatile for it. But yeah, that was, that was a left turn. I mean, come on. Oh, great, the article came out. Whoa. <laughs> you know, it's so crazy, right? Think about it. CTAs are agnostic, long and short. Like, we're talking a bunch of bullish stuff up here. I'm mostly short commodities right now. I think you know, we talked about long. this. <laughs> but we're mostly short. I'm long-term bullish for fundamental reasons, but I'm going to follow the trend. CTAs are bringing liquidity. I mean, everybody gets this narrative now. So Bloomberg got it wrong. I mean, I'm not sure who... I wasn't familiar with that writer. It was just silly. There were some great CTAs that responded to that article, as you probably saw. Where it's secrets. Yeah, I mean, and there's just silliness. That's like say taking take away the shorts from all markets. You know, shouldn't be allowed to short. Come on, that's ridiculous. You guys mentioned somebody mentioned politics over the next I don't know year or two. We got seventy percent. Somebody said a stat error. Sixty percent of the population. Experience an election this year. An election this year. I know. I, I just focus on our little hemisphere, and I know Canada and the U.S. kind of have a, some issues coming up here. If, if, if the right, if the people get in there, let me just say it politically correct. If the people get in there that have been saying, "Drill, baby, drill," do we, do we get down to forty bucks in oil or something like our commodities? Do we lose that super cycle short-term piece that you guys have been talking about? I'll, I'll take it in oil. I think right now you're, you're looking at a lot of headwinds in oil. I mean, I think without Saudis, most importantly, having a ton of spare capacity currently, we'd already be over 100, um, given what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. So I think the fact that they're sitting on their spare capacity and their voluntary cuts has really led to it. I think Biden is on the phone with them a lot because the last thing they want is to see the spike. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they came out and kind of did that. Now, if they go back to the drill baby drill, I don't think it's going to materially change stuff. You're still running into the headwinds of every oil production costs a lot more to make just because you know, at, at 4%, that means you need to make almost close to 11 on your money to do it, and you're about getting that out as it's coming in. So all these new oil projects have such a large lead time that even if you know January of 25, they set foot in the White House and it's like, yeah, whatever you want, federal lands, let's go. You're still going to have a hard time getting that out in a meaningful way. Um, now, once you're five to seven years away from, well, from, you can say, let's go right now. Yeah. And, and even if that happened, they opened up west coast of Canada, which will probably never happen. Five, seven, ten years away. I mean, this is a layer of the volatility that you talk much about, and that's that regulatory side. Yeah, I mean, shale's really fast to drill. Like, you can drill shale fast, but they're kind of doing that already. We saw a big resurgence in shale this past year in the growth. But the problem with shale is your decline rates. Like, I heard it great that someone called shale a Ponzi scheme, and it's kind of true. You know, like in the first 15, 16 months of a shale oil well, you get about 75 or 80 percent of the total value of that well out. So, if the decline rate is almost parabolic to the downside. And so you're having to constantly put money, put money or get more efficient. And they've gotten better and more efficient, but you're still decline rates and you have to keep investing, which is why if you look at the CapEx budgets of some of the larger, it just keeps going and they keep going because they want to <coughs> see that, hey, we increased production 20% year and year. Okay, well, CapEx had to go up by XYZ. You know, there's a reason why these shale companies aren't issuing massive dividends because they have to keep putting it back in the company to keep it going. So, I mean, I do think that, you know, when we talk about the oil shale cycle, oil super cycle, we have to get, demand has to catch up to the Saudis. Right now there's one or two million of spare capacity, and I think that's about 12 to 18 months away. So I think next summer is kind of when I think oil will be in trouble. I think this summer, unless unless you have a material outage somewhere else in the world, whether, you know, we've sanctioned Iran for the last 18 months and they're still producing almost a max, because basically Russia, and you know, Russia, India, China, just says we don't care. We'll, we'll take whatever we. You, know. you sanctioned them, but nothing happened. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's yeah. not get political. <laughs> <laughs> Wyoming. <laughs> With the uh, the geopolitical risk, and I think a lot of that gets overstated somewhat. Because just this week, and you mentioned it before, Biden uh, said that we're going to pause all future LNG uh, approvals, and the the timeline, as you were saying, for that to have any impact on natural gas prices now. We're talking about a decade plus. It just takes two, two plus years just to get through the EPA. Never mind to start building and such there. So, 
we're pausing LNG export facilities. How's that going to impact natural gas prices right now? Well, maybe in eight years that'll have some sort of impact on the supply demand if we don't have a major technological change or a new party comes in between now and those eight years, maybe it'll impact prices then. So I think a lot of the geopolitical risk and what we're talking about gets somewhat overstated and sort of just uh, posturing, if you would, to, to some degree. Remember when COVID hit and we were all wondering, you know, because oil went negative, you know, and how long is it going to stay down here and where's all this oil going to go because we're not flying around and we're not doing all this stuff? Look where we are, right? Where did all the oil get gobbled up? It, it went places it's not going away and so I think we, we can see and I'm short but the reality is I think that the, the upside risks are far more plentiful than they are on the downside overall when we look at commodities as a whole and when you've got countries again like India weaponizing commodities taking them off the market and playing those games you know, you're, you're introducing a whole other dy dynamic, like we need another cartel type concept, right? You brought us back to India, and that's where I wanted to go. So. Good. The, um, I thought your comparison of late 90s China middle class tidal wave versus what we anticipate coming out of India, I think it's a, a perfect, it's beautiful. The, um, how do you see those two events being similar and different? You talk about, could you explore the weaponization a, of commodities a, really a little bit? I mean, they are very different. So, this is such a, we're getting into the weeds here, but like China, Sorry, we're, we're never China. sure, we're never sure what we get out of China from a numbers perspective. It's opaque, it's communist, right? So, you get, you get what you get, you don't get upset, try to figure it out, put your money there as a CTA, hopefully you get it out. Um, India is different. It's educated, democratic, very capitalist motivated. You got a government that is trying to expand so fast, they're spending 20% of their GDP, 20% right now, on infrastructure. Just think about it, it's such a game changer. Plus a very educated population, it's mobile. And so India is different, and it is gonna play out different. It isn't gonna be the exact same as China. But I really believe, and what I've seen in spending time trying to figure it all out, it's that catalyst point when the middle class gets to a certain point. They can be taxed and they demand stuff, right? India's point of inflection has just started to occur, but it's going to occur so much faster. And so you've got this massive middle class there that's just, it's, it's, it's going to be the largest middle class, some say in three years, some say in five. It could even be faster than that. Right? That's ahead of the U.S. and ahead of China. Ahead of the U.S. Think of that for one second. So it's such a game changer, and that is where a lot of the commodities are going right now. That's what you know. I, I was trying to figure out in late 22. I went over to Asia, and a friend of mine is head of one of the biggest consultancies over there. And my question to her was, "When is China going to open up?" And she said, "You're asking the wrong question. Right? China's going to be China, and it's a monster. The question is." is really about India. Oh, I'm sorry, the, the, the follow-up piece was the, could you jump quickly in a little bit into uh, the weaponization that you referred to, a little? Well, they pulled, they basically done that with rice, with sugar, last thing, sugar was the best performing thing in my portfolio last year. They, they basically ported it and wouldn't let it hit the market. They, they banned all exports of a number of markets because they need them internally. Yeah. Right. Where I was going is, do you see that continuing, or would that be part of? Well, who's going to slap India's hand? They right. do whatever they want. Yeah, that's true. Like, I mean, this is this is the thing with commodities: is who's going to stand on high and control this situation when we're clearly at some sort of, you know, margin, if you will. Right. If one thing, I liken it to like, you know, you're leaving downtown after work, and it goes swimmingly. But if one car gets a flat tire leaving downtown, everything backs up. That's what the commodity market feels like right now. Works great until it doesn't work. And India's playing those games. And they're not the only nation, they're just the big boy. So what do I care? Volatility. It's great. Final thought for what we've talked about today and what you're thinking about for the balance of the year. Um, and please pass the mic here. <laughs> I'm getting yelled at. 
so well recapping what we spoke about today, you have this opportunity to really diversify your portfolio in some great performing CTAs that are going to give you a, a, a better blended return over time. Um, there's a lot of talented commodity traders out there and um, you don't have to just invest one, you could diversify across a handful of them and you're going to have this great return profile with um, some, some pretty good upside versus the rest of your portfolio. Yeah, I'm just going to say, you know, what uh, you said a few minutes ago, you, you got to have commodities in, uh, in the portfolio. Uh, commodities are certainly in play, you know, everything started in the second half of 2020. You can, uh, you can tell that, you know, things are moving in, uh, in a different way. If you've been trading commodities in the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight years, you can certainly tell that you got to, you, you want to be in this game. And uh, I think it's all, you know, it's all about and, you know, having, that is having exposure to different, different, different strategies within commodities. Uh, you don't know whether it's going to be copper, it's going to be sugar, or it's going to be something else. You just want to have exposure to all of those. You want to have directionality in the book as well as RB, because I think we saw enough, you know, enough dislocations in the last like two, three years with you know, negative TI, gold, DFP. Uh, you know, blowing out uh, copper arb that is one of the strategies that they focus on that reach you know, levels. But the arb between London and New York reached reach levels never seen before. So I think these things will happen more and more. And uh, again, I think a volatility, which is something that we mentioned a few times in the last hour. And something that I kind of missed there with uh, the exposure to the CTAs and the managers, and we kind of touched on this before, but a quick recap. like. Our strategy is completely agnostic to the price of natural gas. Brent's strategy is completely agnostic to the price of crude, and we're still able to extract returns. So even if we have this these short-term volatile events, um, we're not just and this commodity super cycle doesn't happen. If commodities don't go up the next ten years, we're still extracting alpha and still returning. Um, and that's a good part of the strategy. I forgot the question. I may be deep, so. Commodities go up, commodities go down. I think we're a better short trader than a long trader, so you know, I'm indifferent here, to be honest with you. But I just think let's be realistic about what's going on. So if you look statistically, if you add a negatively correlated return to a portfolio of anything, it adds value, and trend following has been proven to be one of the most accretive to a portfolio. So commodities trend following, negative correlations, I mean, and there's nothing more to say. It's just you know, try to find the delivery mechanism to raise money, whether it's an ETF or a managed account. I mean, it really doesn't matter. That's a good takeaway. Yeah, I think I think the moral is short Canada, right? Sorry. <laughs> 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 yeah, we just had we just had your guy Tucker Carlson up there saying short Canada. I'm sure he was. I'm sure he was. No, I think uh, again, it's just reiterate. I think everything is kind of shaping up for a really fascinating year in oil. Um, obviously, the first six weeks or first couple weeks of the year have been have been kind of out of the off the charts in terms of you know the news cycle every single day it's been something new but I think the relative value trades are going to be just as interesting as we start to approach in the summer whether it's gasoline or distillate um, those are still growing tremendously and I think there's going to be a shortage of at least one possibly both um, in the summer so I think relative value and and uh, in the oil space is kind of be the theme for 24 and then I think going on like I said I think there's a I realistically think in 25 or 26, we definitely see 150 oil at some point. Just from a standpoint of we, we're not investing currently and it's going to catch up. So. All right, all great points. Um, I would encourage you to remain curious about the asset class and this exposure you can get through the likes of these gentlemen. Um, follow them and learn from them. I know that even in my preparation for this panel, I learned a ton. So um, thank you to the panel. Okay, that's the podcast. Thanks to Brent, Derek, Tim, and Gerardo. Thanks to Camille for running the panel down there in Miami. And thanks to Jeff Berger for producing. We'll be back next week with a guest who's blending equity exposure with global macro allocations. What's that all about? Tune in next week to find out. Peace. You've been listening to The Derivative. Links from this episode will be in the episode description of this channel. Follow us on Twitter at RCMAlts and visit our website to read our blog or subscribe to our newsletter at rcmalts.com. If you liked our show, introduce a friend and show them how to subscribe.
and be sure to leave comments. We'd love to hear from you. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of RCM Alternatives, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations nor reference past or potential profits, and listeners are reminded that managed futures, commodity trading, and other alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.